Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Steve Harrison, 35 years old, handsome, has the world in his hands. He's admired by his co-workers, his friends, his wife, and his mistress. And then he gets a call. Bill informs him that his wife has been kidnapped, and if Steve wants her back alive, he has to do exactly what he says. Steve deviates from Bill's plan, tries to go to the police, tries to involve others. His wife won't be breathing when he brings her home. Buy, download, and read Person Unknown by Michael Pencavage. A link is in the show notes. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to you put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these lives front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. Well, maybe retakes. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters you know from books, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influence those that follow. Episode three is about temptation, planning, and self-control. This is Pinkerton's The Detective and the Expressman. An Adaptation of The Detective and the Expressman by Alan Pinkerton. Alright, this story was published in 1874, but the real case it's based on is dated 1858. All of Pinkerton's stories are real cases, which puts them in the true crime category. And the one thing that fascinates me about being a mystery fan is the glimpse you get into ordinary life. So this story is a financial thriller. Throughout the story, there are several references to characters having to, quote, change money. Today, we certainly have to change money when we travel to other countries. You can't use a $10 bill in London, and you can't use a 10-euro note in the States. You have to exchange one currency for another, or use a credit card, in which the bank will do it for you in the background for a nice, not nice fee. Today's story takes place in the United States and begins in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, There's a stop in New Orleans, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and New York. So why are these characters changing money? It turns out, in 1863, two laws were passed that created a national banking system and a single currency. Seeing as we became one country in 1776, the question would be what were we using money for almost 100 years in between. The U.S. Constitution granted the federal government the sole power to coin money and regulate its value. Notice the word coin, not paper money. And so the issuance of paper money was the business of state chartered banks. These banks could be, or these bank notes could be exchanged then for silver and gold. In 1820, there were about 327 of these banks located in commercial centers. Um, so think about cities like Philadelphia and Cleveland, New York. By 1858, the year that we're talking about in our story, there were over 1,400 banks. Think about that, over 1,400 different printed bills. So it stands to reason that if you were a merchant in Montgomery, Alabama, you might not want to accept bills from a bank, say, in New Hampshire. 
So a customer would then would have to exchange the notes for one that's more local. You think about that, there is an entire industry was needed not only to support local businesses, but to enable commerce between places. Fun fact, until 1857, Spanish dollars and other foreign coins were accepted as part of our money system. That must have been handy. Jack, you want to tell us a little bit about today's original author? Jack's a little bit sleepy. He had a late night. Thanks. <laughs> first we did... Uh, wait, that's not what it says. We did our first Pinkerton story in Season 2, Episode 3. Pinkerton called it the detective and the... Uh, what? Sleepwalker. Yeah. Somambulist. That word. Uh, we called it Desperate Times, or In Desperate Times. Alan Pinkerton is one of T.G. Wolf's favorite writers because he is so interesting. I thought he was your favorite writer because <coughs> he was so interesting. He was a Scottish-American who moved to Chicago from Glasgow, Scotland in 1842 at 23 years old. And he worked at a barrel-making factory. While working there, he caught on to a counterfeiting scheme and helped arrest a criminal detective. What? Nope. A criminal gang. He joined the Chicago Police Force and eventually became its first detective. There we go. In 1850, he eventually started a private detective agency named Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. The symbol of his company was an unblinking eye. This started the description of private detectives as private eyes. Ow. Anyway, Pinkerton was a devoted abolitionist. He raided... He raised... $500, which is worth 11800 today, to help 11 escaped slaves travel from Chicago to Detroit, with the end goal being Canada. If it costs $11,800 to get from Chicago to Detroit, first of all, they're not exactly great cities. I'm not saying I want to go to either, but still, like, buddy. I really like both cities. Mm-hmm. Sure. This... Notice every crime show ever takes place in either Chicago, Detroit, or New York. No one's like, oh, Fort Wayne. No one's like, oh, you see this little town in Wyoming called Buford? That's the actual smallest town in existence. I bet there's a high crime right there. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many stories if you do Midsummer England where Midsummer We're not murders, talking about Midsummer. That's like old. <laughs> We're talking about oh. 50 to 60% of all crimes. That is true. They are not taking place in freaking... Yeah, why are they all, like, in the Midwest? I guess you get some set in L.A. and stuff. Well, I'm not going to be rude, but oh, yes, look at are. the people who live in L.A. So you don't think they watch television? I think they're easily robbed. Oh. <laughs> but look at them. All right? They're, bi- they're just small-time actors looking to make a name for themselves. They can get shot very easily. <laughs> It's horrible. And then they'll use that as emotion and, you know, how to dig deep in their next performance <laughs> as they perform Little Bo Peep. <laughs> That's you know? horrible. That's truly horrible. I'm not. What? Anywho, uh, this comes. <laughs> this is not up. the no judgment zone, by the way. <laughs> this is not. This comes up in this story because Pinkerton couldn't or wouldn't travel to the south. I should restart. I don't know. So uh, Pink in this story. It's set in the South, and when Pinkerton gets employed to go down there, he's like, yeah, people in the South don't really like me. <laughs> people in the South know him? Guess he was famous enough that he worried about it. 
Alright. Well, anyway, when he finally did go for the case, he took steps to protect himself. His agency grew, taking out jobs that were more than solving cases. They pursued wanted suspects, interviewed, intervened in business owner, owner employee unrest, and acted as security. Pinkerton had a role in our Civil War history, and he and his detectives protected a newly elected President Lincoln on his trip to Washington, D.C., uh, to be inaugurated into office. Uh, the Pinkertons were hired by the U.S. government to hunt down criminals, but they had a reputation of breaking laws and being a danger to the average citizen, kind of like Spider-Man, the menace. Uh, this gave him a mixed reputation of heroes or villains, as J. Jonah Jameson would call him. Uh, and depending on people's point of view, he could be a, a good or bad person. Uh, Pinkerton's downfall came on the hunt for the legendary bank robbers, uh, yeah, bank and train robbers, Jesse and Frank James from the James Younger Gang. A fellow detective named Josephi Richard, uh, Joseph Witcher, was murdered trying to interrogate suspects at the James Homestead. Enraged by the murder, Pinkerton decided to take action. He declared Jesse and Frank deserved to die, and Pinkerton threw, uh, Pinkerton, his fellow detectives, and some locals raided the homestead. Pinkerton threw an incendiary device into the house. That's a thing that makes fire. Uh, this device was supposed to start a fire to force the James brother out of the house. Instead, the device exploded, wounding Jesse's mother and killing Jesse's eight-year-old brother. Brother. Uh, it's funny, because that's where the page ended. Oh. Sorry. Oh, never mind. There's a second page. Uh, Archie, after the death of the boy, the public trans... Uh, the public support turned against the Pinkerton, and it gave up the chase for Frankie and Jesse Jamies. Alan Pinkerton died two years later in 1884. His company continued on through his sons. As his sons grew, it did more and more work for the government. Formation of federal departments like the Secret Service and FBI drew from Pinkerton's people, as did local police forces. Pinkerton still is thriving today, offering a wide range of investigative protection and risk profile services. From 1874 to his death, Alan Pinkerton saw... Oh, there's a verb missing there. Wrote. Wrote some 17 stories. We can make it whatever verb we want. From 1874 to his death, Alan Pinkerton committed crimes. Some 17 stories based on his cases. See, any verb sense. just fits in there. Verb choice does matter. Uh, the first was The Express Man and the Detective in 74, Our Story Today. The last was 30 Years a Detective in 1884. Huh, that's the year he dropped dead. You're, you're so gentle about these things. All right. Well, we reset Jack's fingers and his microphone. We're going to talk about why we're doing adaptations. The language from these 1800 stories can be very hard. Um, and so having a verbal translation is just nice. And the length and style was meant for reading, not for listening. So with adaptations, we can keep the really fun, groundbreaking narrative but package it for a little bit easier digestion. All of Alan Pinkerton's stories are based on actual cases of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and while they're framed in a storytelling style, they are true crime stories. We considered not doing the story this season because of the style. It, it isn't quite a who's done it the way that other stories this season are. But in the end, we included it because Pinkerton does such a great job of framing his stories, and it's worth sharing. So with that, we are ready for Pinkertons, The Detective, and The Expressman.
Chapter 1, Setting the Stage In the summer of 1858, I received a request from the Adams Express Company to look into the theft of $10,000. An express company specialized in the transfer of goods, documents, and money between places. With commerce booming, there were a number of express companies working across the region. Wells Fargo had the American Express Company, it was taking off, and the Adams Express Company was also highly reputable. Using messengers, Adams moved their goods in their charge between cities on the east side of the Mississippi River. While they were founded and had an extensive reach in the north, they essentially had a monopoly across some of the southern routes, and it was here that the trouble happened. A clerical error sent $10,000 in bills for the Planters and Mechanics Bank of Charleston, South Carolina, addressed to a person in Columbus, Georgia, via Macon, Georgia, but it never arrived. The matter was investigated internally, and it was documented that the money had arrived at the Atlanta office. This was known and verified. The Atlanta office said the pouch included the items and was sent on to Montgomery, Alabama with the intent that from Montgomery, it would be routed to Macon, Georgia. The money never arrived in Montgomery. The Adams Express Company hired a number of detectives to look into the situation. Of primary interest were the messenger who carried the package and the clerk who supposedly did not receive it. Both men had excellent reputations and neither exhibited any outward signs of a sudden influx of money. Both denied committing the crime, of course. The reputation of my agency, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, was well known. A letter from the vice president of the Adams Express Company asked me to take the case on. Nearly as well known as my agency was my position as an evolutionist. I had spent a considerable amount of money helping enslaved people reach freedom and lobbying for change. Hence, I did not think traveling to the South was a wise move. I did review the testimony and based on the facts that one, the money was verified to have gone into the pouch, and two, neither the integrity of the pouch or the lock were compromised, I agreed with the opinions of those preceding me that the probable guilty party was Nathan Maroney, the receiving agent in Montgomery. I also agreed that there was not evidence upon which to arrest him, let alone prosecute. I advised watching Maroney for any purchases unreasonable for his position. I considered the matter closed. A month later, I received another letter demanding I send a detective. Another theft had taken place. This time, $40,000 was missing. To give some perspective to the size, a day's wages for a carpenter in Alabama at this time was $1.76. A laborer would earn about 70 cents a day. A domestic female would earn $1.40 a week, so if she started working at age 14, the stolen money would sustain her to a ripe old age of 563. The express company was, without understatement, distressed by the situation. Still, I determined that myself traveling to Alabama was not in my best interest. Instead, I sent one of my top men. Based on his reports, I became convinced that Maroney was the guilty party. With the moral and financial backing of Adams Express, I developed a plan. The key to discovering where the money was, was to have my detectives taken into the confidence of Mr. Nathan Maroney and his wife. To do that, I had to create the need for a confidant. While Maroney visited New York on holiday, I worked with the Adams Express Company to have him arrested and the bail set so high, he was all but impossible for him to get out of jail. 
Isolated from his wife, abandoned by his friends, he would turn to fellow inmate and undercover detective, John R. White. Mrs. Maroney and her daughter, Flora, retreated to her sister's home in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. Mrs. Maroney was just as isolated, ripped away from the nice life they had led. With her husband in jail, she looked to a stranger, a woman whose husband was in prison, Madame Hebert, my first female detective. To execute my plan and stay ahead of the suspects, I utilized some of my best people in strategic roles. For your benefit, I will refer to them by the roles. Mr. Shadow, for example, followed Maroney on his track through the north. Mr. Runner acted as a messenger and errand boy. We pick up the story told in two voices. John White tells the story of Maroney in the Eldridge Street Jail in New York, and Madame Hebert does the same thing for Mrs. Maroney from Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Chapter 2, The Incarceration of John R. White Being walked through the Eldridge Street Jail would have been a low point in my life if I wasn't being paid to be here. Pinkerton had asked me to do a good number of things I never thought I'd do. By comparison, this one was easy. All I had to do was mind my own business, sit tight, and let the pigeon come to me. All while, I collected a dollar a day and ate two squares. The jailer led me into the block that held the type of criminal who could pay for meals prepared by a nearby restaurant. The faces I walked past weren't weathered and hardened. They were smooth and refined. Not necessarily clean and trim. This was jail, after all. These were gentlemen. Recognize one of your own, Maroney, the jailer said to a tall, sad-looking man who'd come to see the new guy. I'm going to start calling this Swindler's Alley. The prisoner, Maroney, lifted his chin. I've told Adams, I've told the police, and I'm telling you, I didn't steal that money. Just wait until my trial and you'll all see. The jailer chuckled. An innocent man in a jail. Never heard that one before. Stop here, White, the jailer said to me. He unlocked the closed cell door, swung it full open, and shoved me inside. Once he laid out the rules, he left me in the cell, door open. The cells opened to a common area, which connected to a packed dirt courtyard. Inmates could move between the areas under the constant watch of the guards. I dropped to my cot and sat, not making a move to join the population. The next day I kept to myself again, not speaking to anyone until Runner came. Another of Pinkerton's men, Runner had the kind of face that would always look young. My life hasn't been easy and I wear it in the lines that put me ten years older than my real age. The difference between us made it easy for anyone interested to believe that Runner was my nephew. The telegraph was rewriting the speed of communication, but that was for the few. For ordinary people, letter writing was still the mode of the day. The men in jail weren't ordinary. Without the help of a trusted man, prisoners were completely cut off from family, attorneys, life as it existed. So a guy like me, who had a guy like Runner, was a guy that everyone wanted to know. Runner met with me for a half hour. Mostly we talked nonsense about my case. He took directions on actions that he wouldn't carry out. After three days, other inmates began to approach me to hire Runner for their errands. Within a week, I had a nice side hustle going on. Maroney was in his, the cell next to mine, but we hadn't spoken yet, not directly. One of his friends was my best customer, so we'd been around each other, but that was the extent of it, until he came to my cell one morning, minutes after it was unlocked. 
Will your nephew post a letter for me, he asked. Five cents, I said. It's to my wife, he said. Still five cents, I said. He handed over the nickel and the letter and kept talking. My missus is a good woman. I worry about how hard her life is right now. Neither of us deserve this. I didn't do anything. I added his letter to the bundle and gave him a measured smile. I didn't do anything either. Runner arrived on time with a message from my supposed attorney. I gave him today's post and directions including a coded message about the letter from our pigeon. Runner would make a copy and deliver it to Pinkerton for orders before sending the original letter on. As Runner left the table, Maroney took a seat. He talked about his wife, he talked about other prisoners, he talked about everything except what I was there to find out. That was fine. I was patient. Chapter 3 The Retirement of Madame Hebert. Jenkintown was a quiet little borough with a charming garden, just the thing a woman in my situation needed. As I strolled through the green, I thought how I'd become an actress in the years since I began working for Mr. Pinkerton. I went to him with the idea of becoming a detective, and while that is what he paid me for, detecting, it turned out it required quite a bit of role-playing. Strolling through this garden, I am not Kate Warren, but the scandalized Madame Hebert. My husband was Jules Hebert, a notorious forger who was the root of the Bills of Exchange case. He sat behind bars in a penitentiary somewhere while his wife lived on without him. In these modern times, being a woman without a man to rely on made for a hard life. Being married to a man who was incarcerated made for a hard and lonely life. Financially strapped, socially scorned, the wife paid twice the price of her husband. He had shelter. He had meals. She had only what she could piece together. This is what I thought of as I walked through the well-tended garden in the height of summer bloom. It gave me no reason to smile. A young girl of seven or eight skipped around a pond. She radiated the carefree joy of youth, her braids bouncing each time she landed, laughing as she went faster and faster, and she fell. She was no more than two steps from me when her foot slipped on loose stone. I hurried to her, kneeling at her side. Are you hurt, dear one? She tried to be brave, but a tear rolled down her cheek. My knee hurts. I gently pushed back the hem of her dress and revealed the small knee quite a bit rudder than the rest of her, but otherwise uninjured. You're lucky, I said, gently brushing the dirt and stone from her skin. No cuts, just a bruise. Just then, a woman and a man rounded the corner. The woman dropped the man's arm and rushed to the girl. Flora, my darling, what happened? She asked. She fell, I'm afraid, I said, but it appears she escaped with merely a bruise. Flora's mother inspected the knee for herself. Once satisfied, she pulled her daughter's skirt back down. You must slow down, she said. I wasn't going that fast, Flora answered. The two of us then pulled Flora to her feet, who didn't hesitate to walk off exploring, albeit at a slower pace. Thank you for the kindness, the mother said. Flora does love to race ahead. I'm Mrs. Maroney. I'm pleased to meet you, Mrs. Maroney. I'm Madame Bear. I said, my name in a hush, as though to prevent others from overhearing. The pleasure is mine, she said. Are you... Canadian, madam? French, I said. My husband and I were born and raised in the West Indies. It's been so long since I've been home. I looked around the landscape typical of areas of Philadelphia, assuming it would be very difficult from an exotic tropical island. I wonder if I shall ever see it again. 
I looked to the girl's smelling flowers. You are very lucky, Mrs. Moroni. You have a handsome husband and a charming daughter. You have everything, while I have nothing. Mrs. Moroni looked over her shoulder to the man waiting for his cue. Mr. DeForest is not my husband, but a kind man being courteous to a woman in need. I took her hand, squeezing it. We should all have kind men in our lives. Have a good day, Mrs. Moroni. As I walked away, DeForest took my position at Maron Mrs. Moroni's side. Who is that, he asked. Madame Hebert, Mrs. Moroni said. The woman you wanted to meet, he replied. Yes, she seemed so sad when I saw her in the tavern. Sad and elegant. I wonder if she would like to have tea. Chapter 4, Three Strikes I can't believe this. Moroni tore up his letter he just received. My wife cannot raise the funds. All of my friends have turned her away. All but Porter, but he hasn't two dimes to rub together. Porter was a Pinkerton man, and he'd taken a junior position in a rooming house that Moroni's used to live in in Montgomery. No, he didn't have the money to post Moroni's bail. Friends, I said derisively. Another word for spineless backstabbers. As long as you can keep their glasses full, they won't say a word against you. But when times get a little rough, they forget your name, Maroney said. I'll tell you, White, nobody knows you when you're down and out. It doesn't help that this damn state of New York set my bail at $100,000. Murderers have lower bonds. I whistled. That is a handsome sum. If you have friends with that kind of backing, I want to know who you know. They don't, he said. Not individually, but together they could post it. I'm going to win this case against me, both here and in Montgomery. The Adams Exchange Company, Adams Express Company, has to be behind this. It doesn't make sense otherwise. They can't accept that they've been duped and have decided to pin it on me. Makes sense, I said. Who would trust an exchange who lost? How much did you say was stolen? $50,000 altogether, he said. The first time was 10000 the second time 40000 Losses like those could crush their reputation, I said. I wouldn't use them if I had another option. They have to make it look like they're doing something or they could go bankrupt. Maroney started pacing. But I had nothing to do with it. They can keep me here and weave their web of lies, but it won't do any good. They won't get their money back because I don't have it. They won't get their conviction because I didn't do it. I nodded in agreement. There is comfort there, I said. It is terrible what will happen to your reputation in the meantime, though. For the first time, Maroney looked bloodthirsty. I'm going to sue them for defamation. As soon as this criminal trial is over and I'm vindicated, I'm going to sue them for $100,000. No, 200. They are never going to forget the name of Nathan Maroney. I pounded my fist on the table in solidarity. Hit him where it hurts, I say. Yes, I will, Maroney said, sitting down again. He opened his second letter and read. The color drained from his face. My lord, my wife is stepping out on me. He flipped the single piece of paper across the table. Maroney had been informed that his lovely wife had been seen driving into Philadelphia in the company of a handsome man. This anonymous tattler thought only of Maroney's best interest and felt it his duty to inform him. It's not signed, Maroney said. I slapped the page on the table. Somebody's trying to get to you. That someone was Pinkerton, of course. I need paper and ink, Maroney said. When is Runner due back? I shrugged. Tomorrow? Damn it, that's too late. 
It's a good thing, if you ask me, I said. You need time to cool down. You're in a lather over a note from someone who doesn't have the stones to put his name at the bottom of the letter. The next day, Runner arrived at his appointed time, and he left with a letter addressed to Mrs. Moroni, care of Mrs. Cox, Jenkinstown, Pennsylvania. Chapter 5, A Spoonful of Sugar Mrs. Moroni and I were quickly becoming good friends. She seemed to understand my sadness. No, I shouldn't use that word understand, as we have never discussed what we've both been alluding to. She was, instead, sympathetic to my feelings. I suspect it was either because she felt similarly... Of course, we didn't speak of that either. We did speak of her sister, Mrs. Cox, and her husband, Joshua. Josh was a good man, but far too lazy to be a good provider. Her sister did everything she could to run a house and care for two children on the little he made doing the occasional job. And he was a drinker. He spent more time at Stemple's Tavern than he did working. His three friends, Horton, Barkley, and Plant, kept, out, kept him out at all hours. Horton and Barkley went years back. Plant was the newest fool in their band of idiots. Plant was, well, a Pinkerton planted charge with... Let's try that sentence again. Plant was, well, a Pinkerton planted and charged with the goal of getting close to Cox as much as I was to Mrs. Moroni, and he seemed to be succeeding. Mr. Cox sounds like a bad apple, I said. I feel for your sister. I too love a bad apple. I do miss my husband. Mrs. Moroni bit her upper lip, cautiously approaching the topic. From our conversations, I, I know Monsieur Ambert has not died. I know it is improper, but I'm terribly curious. Where is he? I covered her hand with mine. I feel you are a sister to me, Mrs. Moroni. I know I can trust you. You can, she said, covering my hand with her free one. You can tell me anything. My husband is incarcerated. Oh, what is the word? Incarcerated, she said. I was afraid it was something like that. I told her my backstory, finishing by pulling my hand back. You think poorly of me now, I said, like the rest of society. Oh, no, she said, lunging to reclaim my hand. I understand completely. You see, my husband is also incarcerated. He's the victim of a company who needs to blame someone for their bad luck, and they've chosen my Nate. He has so many friends in so many cities. Not all of them have turned their back on him. Yes, I said, that is what they do. Flora and I traveled across the South before coming here, she said. I visited every friend of standing to try to raise his bail. Is it a lot, I asked. She nodded gravely. One hundred thousand dollars. I gasped. That is a fortune. Again, she nodded. I can't raise it. So Nate sits in jail awaiting trial. He has not been tried, I said. So there is hope. Oh, here comes Mr. Semple. Good day, ladies, said the personal man who ran the tavern that was the center of Jenkinstown's social and business world. The mail has arrived, Madame Hebert, he said, handing me a small envelope. Then he did the same for Mrs. Moroni. Simultaneously, we opened and read. I smiled and pressed my hand to my heart. It was from my supposed husband. Once finished, I sighed. But Mrs. Moroni was on her feet, livid. I cannot believe this. My husband is accusing me of cavorting with Mr. DeForest. After everything I have done, how can he be so, so, so stupid? Let me see, I offered, 
holding out my hand for her letter. There it was, in an angry man's scrawl. But this is ridiculous. He said he received an anonymous letter. Someone is trying to deceive him. Maybe the same people who are accusing him. <gasps> she gasped. I bet you're right, Madame Bear. I bet you are exactly right. Write to him, I advised. Help him see sense. But perhaps you should not travel into Philadelphia alone with him for a while. Go with your sister. Perhaps Mr. DeForest wrote the letter. Perhaps he's the one watching you. Either way, it's not good. Mrs. Maroney grabbed my hand. The day I met you was the first good day I've had in a long time. You see things so clearly. Will you come with us? I know it's a lot to ask, but you make me feel so rooted. I smiled softly. How can I refuse you? Chapter 6. She loves me. She loves me not. She... Maroney read the letter from his wife three times. A smile the size of a watermelon grew across his face. I take it she loves you, I asked. He nodded, the besotted fool. I was an idiot to doubt her. She is one of the smartest people I know. She said someone is trying to turn us against each other. I told you the same, I said. I know you did, White. I just... I can't explain it to a bachelor. She said that man, DeForest is his name, has been helping by driving her into the city. It's a full 10 miles from Jenkintown to Philadelphia. I never expect her to walk the distance. She goes in several times a week to see my lawyers and to continue to lobby my friends on my behalf. Oh, why did I doubt her? You were baited into it, I said. I was, he said, with an extra dose of enthusiasm. My trial is in two days. After I'm acquitted, I'm going to Jenkintown to get my wife and Flora, and we are on that first train to Montgomery. I nodded. I have news myself. I held up a letter runner brought. My lawyer thinks he has a way out for me. He needed more money. Lawyers always need more money, Maroney said. Exactly, I said. He sounded confident that within a week, I'll be on the outside. Good, my friend, good, Maroney said. Our days staring at each other are numbered. He slapped me on the shoulder, then left our table to spread his joy to other unsuspecting victims. But his happiness was short-lived. The federal judge who heard the case remanded Maroney to Montgomery to stand trial for the theft of $50,000. Pinkerton and Adams Express had their hand in the evidence and swayed the judge's opinion, though they were not visible in the courtroom. Maroney sat on my cot in shock and disbelief. I leaned in the corner conducting business ahead of Runner making his daily appearance. My customers looked at Maroney without comment. In here, everyone knew everything about everyone. When we're alone, I decided to be a good guy and offer him hope. You still have the trial in Alabama. Without evidence against you, they'll have to let you go. Maroney shook his head. That's what I thought this time. Adams Express has enough money to buy every judge and jury from here to Missouri. It doesn't matter that I didn't do it not to them. They need a scapegoat to hang it on, and I'm it. Too bad all the attention is on you, I said. What sort of man is Chase? That's the messenger's name, right? Is he the kind of man who would find a bundle of money, pick it up, and spend it freely? Maroney was thoughtful. No, I don't think he would. He's a pretty honest man, but that gives the company no right to turn him as a witness against me. I ignored the sulking remark. Does he go for fancy girls? Sometimes, he said, he is a bachelor. 
I looked around to make sure we weren't overheard. It would be a good plan to have the girls get him good and drunk one night, stuff his pockets with four or five thousand dollars, and then turn him out to be stopped by a detective. Maroney's eyes widened. That would be a very good plan indeed. I'll give it some thought. Chapter 7, A Midnight Affair Mrs. Maroney left Jenkintown shortly after our last conversation, taking Flora with her. A letter had arrived from her husband with directions. Mrs. Maroney's sister, Mrs. Cox, was particularly tight-lipped about what those directions were. I acted as if I had no interest, except for the well-being of my friend. I was not put out by the secrecy in the least. Pinkerton had a man assigned to shadow Mrs. Maroney wherever she was in trans transit. Shadowed had followed her from the start of this affair. My job was to play my role until Mrs. Maroney returned, which she did within a week. She looked frightfully tired. I returned to the South, she said. I had to sell more of my husband's assets. Better to convert it to cash, she said, than to let the company confiscate it. This is so unfair. Nate worked so hard to build what we had. Truly, I said. With the air of an infallibility these companies take with everything, which is many, many more times than they are wronged. Exactly, Mrs. Maroney said. Is it more the sin because Nate is innocent? Nobody is involved. Not one single person is interested in the truth. We continued on in this manner, walking through the public garden, Flora running ahead of us. Mr. DeForest appeared as he often did. He smiled when he saw Mrs. Maroney and then frowned when he saw me. Good afternoon, ladies, he said with a courteous bow. I am glad I ran into you, Mrs. Maroney. I have to go into Philadelphia tomorrow and wondered if you'd care to do the same. Mrs. Maroney looked to me. What do you say, Madame Bear? Care to travel into the city tomorrow? I would, thank you, I said, ignoring how DeForest's face fell. I have some banking I need to do. And so we three squeezed into DeForest's buggy, which had only one seat, which was less than adequate for the three of us. Mrs. Maroney was in the center, her legs pressed against DeForest's, which seemed a compensation for a chaperone. In Philadelphia, we went our separate ways, agreeing on a time to meet back. I went to the bank to withdraw the funds Pinkerton had left for me, and then went to an exchange house to consult with my employer. He briefly summarized the progress of my counterparts. He was optimistic that we were approaching the zenith of this case. I left the exchange just as I had entered, alone. I hadn't crossed the street when I heard my name being called. Hello, Mrs. Maroney, I said with a stage smile. Are you concluded in your affairs? Mrs. Maroney's face was tight with distrust. I thought you said you had to go to the bank. I was prepared for this contingency. I did, I said, looking shamefully down at my hands. I see you are wondering why I was in an exchange. You say I have to be very careful with my funds, lest my husband's persecutors bankrupt me. I know a gentleman with particular talents. He has taught me how to use the banker's tricks against them. I raised my chin proudly. I only do what I need to survive. Mrs. Maroney took my hands in hers. We are the same, you and I. Can you teach me as he did? I have money from the sale of our assets. It's not stolen, no matter what the company thinks. How do I protect it? I swear to you, it weighs on me as if it were an anchor. Yes, I said, it is like that. First, if not already, you must put it in a secure location. Burying it, brick it up, something that will put your mind at ease. She nodded, and I could practically see her mind working. I am a fool. Will you make the introduction to your friend? 
it was my turn to squeeze her hands. You are not a fool, and yes, I will write to him and ask him to meet you. For a reasonable fee, he can help you manage your funds. The plot set itself up nicely. I would write to Pinkerton, and he would send another agent to play the role of banker. At worst, Pinkerton would have a sample of the bills to assess if they were from the robbery. Once back in Jenkintown, I signaled Plant and directed him to stay close to Cox. I had every reason to expect Mrs. Maroney was moving the money tonight. Chapter 8, White's Release As soon as Runner left our usual table, I sought out Maroney. I'm sprung, I said. Tomorrow, my bail has been arranged and I have only to wait for the formal decision. Maroney held out his hand. I'm happy for you, White. Couldn't happen to a better man. Appreciate that, I said, dropping into a crouch in his cell. I'm looking forward to a real bed. Maroney nodded. It's the little things. Say, White, I want to do this. What's this, I asked, not following his thoughts. With the messenger, Chase, he said. I want you to travel to Montgomery and make it happen. I nodded. I can do that after a week or so. I have to set my own affairs in order first. I have some funds I need to exchange as well as working with the lawyers. I can advance you the money you'll need. Maroney shook his head. I don't need you to do that. My wife has the funds you'll need. I'll write to her to expect you. No, I said, cutting him off. I, I don't work with women. All they are is likely to bungle things up. Not my wife, Maroney said. She's my partner. She knows everything about our finances and can be trusted. Maybe she trusts you, I said, but she'll never go for me. I'll set it up, he said. I'll write her to expect you. I'll say you have a letter from me proving your identity and that she should give you the money. I still don't like it, I said. Don't be a stiff, White. You said you were going to exchange money. Are you willing to do the same with mine? Maroney went on in detail about exchanging funds from his assets. Seems like you spent some time thinking about this, I said. Sure, I'll help a friend out, but my name stays free and clear of it. I'm not coming back here for you or any man. He shook my hand. That goes without saying. All right, Jack, we're at the part of the story where we pause to give you the opportunity to catch the killer. So since this is a true it's crime story... It's not a killer. Story, what? It's not a killer. No one died. <laughs> it's true crime, so there's not much to figure out than who done it. So the question I'm going to ask you is, how does Pinkerton catch the guy? So it was then? Yeah, it's a true crime story. But they sound so innocent. <laughs> I was believing it too. <laughs> they sound so innocent, the poor guy. <laughs> I was like, it couldn't really not be them. There's only one other even theoretical suspect, which is that one guy they were like, nah, he couldn't have done it. Yeah, when Pinkerton wrote this, he really didn't write it as a mystery. I kept wanting like, well, they must have looked at other people first, but his story it pretty much... who, it was a how. It's a how, st it's a how mystery, not it's a who. How done it. <laughs> yeah. Which is um. interesting. So what do you mean? So how are they found out? Or yeah, how, they how are they found out? Well, I'm assuming they... My My guess is that they both put like... 20 grand into each way because the wife has her own way of how she wants to protect the money and the husband has his way of how he wants to protect the money right so i'm assuming i don't know who cares all right let's keep going i can't brain right now it hurts thinking well i want to tell people about um 
one of my favorite podcasts. It's called The Other Stories. So can you make me some scary music? All right, everyone. Before there was the logic and order of mysteries, there was the chaos and thrill of horror. The Other Stories. <clears throat> wow, my voice just broke right there. The Other Stories carries on the tradition with the original bite-sized tales of the macabre, the fantastic, and the unexplainable. Subscribe wherever you find your podcast and make it the next show you listen to, no matter what my voice does when I'm trying to talk right now. Welcome to fall. All right. Chapter 9. Maroney tells us a story. The morning of my release, Maroney came to my cell. There was an anxious expression that had me sitting taller. What's wrong, I asked. He hesitated a moment before answering. I trust you, White. I nodded. This plan of yours, it's a good plan, he said. I think so, I said. If you swing the suspicion to that messenger, Chase, there's no way a jury can convict you. They'll recognize you as the innocent man you are. Maroney nodded. Then he leaned in close. I'm not innocent, White. I took the money. He smiled then, a sly, self-satisfied grin. I didn't plan on taking the first 10000 but the opportunity was too perfect. It wasn't on the manifest. There was no way to prove the money got to Montgomery. It was easy to drop it into a waste paper basket, and then as soon as Chase was out the door, I packaged up the money and sent it to Atlanta to be held until I claimed it under an alias. I waited months before I claimed it. I transferred the money, invested some, bought a horse with the rest. I was content. Where are you now, I said, encouraging him to talk. I was, but the company wouldn't let it go, he said. They fired me. Then they had the nerve to ask me to stay on until they hired my replacement. I decided I would do it one more time. The $40,000 deposit, I said. Again, it was easy. Chase is a sloppy messenger. I stole the money while he was looking at butterflies. This time I packed it in a trunk and shipped it out. I was sweating, I'll tell you. If anyone had a mind to snoop in the trunk, into the cigar box, they would have been mighty surprised. I eventually sent it to my wife. I felt better with it being under her eye. It's there now in Jenkintown, waiting for you. He squeezed my shoulder. I know you won't let me down. Chapter 10. To give or not to give. The Cox household was a flurry, hurried, and anxious. Plant hung on the periphery, often being often spending the night in the field guarding the root cellar. One night, the family had a huge row that ended with Mrs. Maroney breaking a bottle over Mrs. Cox, Mr. Cox's head. Fortunately for him, he had an especially hard head. Mrs. Maroney and I walked along, our heads together. The street was quiet. Mrs. Maroney was not. My husband expects me to hand over all of our money to a stranger. I won't do it. Who is this man? Why should we trust him with our life? You shouldn't trust this man, I advise, but you should trust your husband. Through you, I know him to be a smart man, one who carefully thinks things out. He would not be taken in by a charlatan. Mrs. Maroney clenched her fists and looked to the sky. I don't know what to do. 
I hate this money. I hate all of it. Josh and my sister think Josh should take the money and leave town. Just disappear. Josh is a smart man, but he's a lazy drunk. He's no trustworthy, more trustworthy than this, this jailbird I supplied. Exactly. Thank you, Mrs. Ember. She took a deep, steadying breath. Why don't you take the money? We can leave together, start a life away from all this. We can take Florida and go to St. Louis. I pause as if considering. I like the idea of moving away, I said, but I won't take your money. It's all I can do to manage my own affairs. I suggest you follow your husband's direction. When is this man to arrive? Tomorrow, she said, or the next day. What are you going to do, I asked. I don't know. I just don't know. I stayed close to Mrs. Maroney. She pressed to leave together to establish her own house. Through Pinkerton, I made arrangements for a house in Chicago. I had stood resolute on not taking the money myself. I had no interest in testifying in court, but this did need to be resolved. I was resigned to the necessity. I would take the money if Miss, Mrs. Maroney refused to turn it over to White. Tensions at the Cox household remained high. My visits were viewed with suspicion. I walked into the house one afternoon to find the main floor empty with voices coming up from the cellar stairs. Mrs. Cox was first to appear with dirt on her skirts. Are you spying? She asked with a steely stare. Is there something to spy on? I asked. She colored and turned and back to the stairs, calling for her sister. Mrs. Maroney appeared next, her brows soiled, her expression a cross between annoyed and exhausted. Shall we walk, Madame Hebert? We walked along the road to the Cox house. I found a house for us, I said. It's in Chicago, in an excellent part of the city. I do love Chicago, she said and we began to make plans for our new home. Over a small rise, a man came into view. It was a bookseller with a sack on his back. Good afternoon, ladies. Can I interest you in a book? I think not, Mrs. Maroney said. No time for frivolities. I smiled at the peddler. Let's not be hasty, Mrs. Maroney. A good book may be just what you need. Maroney, he said, I do have something for you. He withdrew a letter from his coat pocket and handed it to her. She swayed lost all the color in her face. I wrapped my arm around her, shoring her up. She didn't speak, stunned by the indecision. I decided to take control of the situation. I think it would be best, sir, if you would engage a buggy and meet us behind Stepple's Tavern at seven o'clock. At that time, we will be happy to look through your library and compensate you well for our selections. Don't you agree, Mrs. Maroney? My friend, looking on the verge of a breakdown, nodded. Until then, the peddler said, who is my own counterpart, White. You must give him the money, I told Mrs. Maroney when we were alone again. This is eating you alive. Your husband is innocent. He would not want you to suffer for him. She looked at me then. He is not innocent, she said. He did everything they claim. I didn't know it, not at first. It was only later, when I pressed him on certain details, that he brought me into his confidence. I wrapped my arm around her shoulders. This is his crime, not yours. Give the money to this man and let us leave it all behind us. You are right, she said sadly. I'll do as Nate wants. The Cox household was again a flurry of activity. Plant and I were a part of it, supporting Mrs. Maroney's decision in the face of her sister and brother-in-law's vociferous disagreement. At the appointed time, we walked into town, accompanied by Plant, who carried the previ previously buried bills from the cellar. White waited behind Stemples on a side street. He was in the back of a cart, arranging his books. Good evening, bookseller, I called. We have brought you a collection of books to trade. Plant hoisted the bag of money into the cart. 
White raised an eyebrow and then loosened the tie and inspected the bag. Yes, he said, I can sell these. Mrs. Maroney and I went through the motions of picking up a random collection of books. She was pale as we walked away, our arms filled with leather-bound tomes. Tuesday, two days later, Mrs. Maroney, Flora, and I traveled to Chicago, settling into a home Pinkerton used for us female detectives. My role was coming to an end. Chapter 11, The End of the Affair. Alan Pinkerton is talking again, picking up the story. So once White had driven around the corner, myself, Alan Pinkerton, and the Adams Express Vice President left from our hiding spots and met him. We watched the entire exchange. We quickly relieved White of his burden, and the Vice President deposited the bills in their vault. Of the over $40,000, I guess it was $50,000. No, of the, okay. Of the $40,000, all but four hundred was recovered. White continued to correspond with Maroney, acting as though he were exchanging bills and coordinating with Porter to implicate Mr. Chase. Then came the day Maroney was transferred to Montgomery. He was a model prisoner, though Shadow was with him at all times, just to be sure. Maroney remained confident in his defense. He hadn't received a letter from White since leaving the New York jail, but that didn't worry him. The day of his trial, he sat behind, beside his lawyer, listening to the circumstantial testimony against him. Indeed, if that was the sum of the prosecution's testimony, he would be walking the streets a free man by the end of the day. But a witness was called that changed all of that. The bailiff read from a page, loudly calling for John R. White. I am sunk, Maroney said, grabbing his lawyer's arms. He knows everything. Take the deal. Take the deal now. Maroney changed his plea to guilty and was sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Okay, so this story was published, and I told you it's a true crime story. <laughs> this was a really long story, and there were so many characters involved that it was really challenging and boiling down. Um, if this were a fiction story, there were some things I would rant about. You can't really rant when it's true crime because it really happened. But, you know, Pinkerton never really talks to us about why they focused in on Maroney. As, you know, Jack, you said when we were talking before, it's like he didn't get us any other suspects. And, I mean, it sounded like Maroney did a really good job of sort of hiding things. Generalities given, like the messenger was a good man, so was Maroney. I would have also liked to have a better explanation of what he was charged with in New York. He was arrested by federal marshals, not city police. So if he was tried for theft, why was he tried for theft again in Montgomery like there's a lot of loose ends that just aren't explained here and maybe part of it is that it was written 20 or 30 years after the case happened but it, it definitely has some questions I did laugh a little bit that this was a financial mystery I have a really hard time with financial mysteries I just I tend not to follow them and it turns out when they're 200 years old I still can't do it so before we wrap up this episode, I did want to talk to you just a little bit about um, something else for you to do in your spare time. Um, I want you to, I want you to get onto your favorite website, get onto your favorite booksellers' website, get into their store. And if you dig flawed cops, I want you to meet my Cleveland homicide detective, Jesus De La Cruz. His debut case is exacting justice. 
Cruz goes after a serial killer who put praise on the drug community. He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't in this case, where the bad guy is making streets safer. After coming close too many times, Cruz goes undercover, coming face to face with his own demons for a chance to end a killer's reign. Read Exacting Justice and see if you can beat Cruz to the truth. Happy hunting, detective. With that, we will wrap up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting the season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. The information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Pinkerton's The Detective and the Expressman was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from The Detective and the Expressman by Alan Pinkerton. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Cracks and voices are from The Fall Weather, and the occasional dog bark is from Mia. Thank you all. Have a great week. <laughs>